it didn't listen to me. It walked out of the thicket, it turned around and looked at me. They looked up and in this tree, there was a monkey man. And the monkey man jumped down out of the tree and started running away. And suddenly they're right in front of the car. He slams on the brakes and manages to stop. And he's skidding because it's not quite, you know, um, gravelling. And for literally for about a second and a half, they just stood there because they don't know where to go. And you tell them panicking, they're like ripping up thing. Their, their, their face is like twitching. Bigfoot Society. This is your host, Jeremiah Byron. Every week I talk to different people in the cryptozoology field. You never know who's going to be on next week. If you'd like to sponsor the show, head on over to patreon.com forward slash the Bigfoot Society. All right, Bigfoot Society podcast. We've got another uh, interview for you, uh, this time with new friend Ryan Edwards uh, from the great state of Texas. How's it going? How's it going on, Ryan? doing pretty good it's a little hot down here in texas but i'm surviving <laughs> yeah, that's right that's right you're surviving that's what matters man i am uh, glad to talk to you tonight do you mind spent uh taking a few minutes uh, introducing yourself for the listeners ryan of course my name is ryan edwards i'm a cryptozoological researcher based here in texas uh central texas uh in particular san antonio i've been doing uh research into cryptozoology and 14 Fulton zoology in general for around 10 years now. I'm only 21 myself, so I've been doing this about half half my life. So it's been pretty good so far. I've usually do research into the more scientific side of cryptozoology because I truly see cryptozoology as a zoological field. Maybe one that mm -hmm. hasn't gotten its uh, recognition in academia, but still a zoological field. So I try to bring my expertise in paleoanthropology, zoology, and paleontology into this field. Oh, that's, that's, how that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, you come uh, you come highly recommended from a mutual friend of ours, uh, Emily Fleur, from the Forest Fleur, of course. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's very interesting. So you are a very uh, – you're a young – Young cryptozoologist, which is cool because you know it's it's good to know that we've got uh, some some young cryptozoologists coming up in the ranks. You know, uh, uh, even myself, I'm not I'm not <laughs> 21 anymore. That's for sure. But uh, <laughs> Brian, what was it? Uh, you know, let's say, you know, back when you were 11, 12, what was it that got you into uh, you know being so into cryptids and cryptozoology to begin with? Well, what it was is, I asked, like I like to say, any young boy, I love dinosaurs and animals and mysteries and like Scooby Doo style things like that, uh, monsters. But then I got into a particular television show, uh, Monster Quest, uh, produced by yep. uh, High Check. And then what I saw is, okay, there's real life monsters roaming these woods and walking this earth. So I got into it that way, but then I saw it as, no, these aren't monsters. These are just unknown species. They are monsters in appearance and maybe behavior, but they're still just species. So I got into the more, okay, 
what are these creatures? Are they somehow paleontological? Are they somehow evolutionary offshoots or something else? Or are they something else? Or are they just something else in general? So it's really thanks to like a lot of television shows and books I read as a kid that really got me into this field. It's it's interesting, you know, you bring up Monster Quest with Doug Hycheck. And it's just crazy to think of, you know, for that generation, you know, how many uh, people that probably influenced to to go into that field or to be interested in that field. I mean, in every generation has it, you know, you've got your in search of, you've got your, you know, Monster Quest, you're finding Bigfoot. And I think probably the current one, well, yeah, you know, you got a few, you know, you could have Expedition Bigfoot, you could have Mountain Monsters even, you could have, you know, your YouTube stuff, yeah, definitely Small Town Monsters and, uh, you know, Beyond the Trail with uh, Alex and Eli, all that good stuff. But uh, that's very interesting. I can tell that this is going to be a really detailed uh, discussion about what your thoughts uh, regarding uh, cryptids are when we get a little bit further into it. But um you know, so at that time frame, you know, you were watching Monster Quest. Did it get to a point where you started, um, you know, you started uh, really looking into stuff and maybe even going out yourself and searching for cryptids yourself? Or or what was the next point after watching uh, the Monster Quest series? Actually, one of the major points was actually news that happened down here in South Texas. Uh, just about maybe 50 to 60 miles south of San Antonio, there's a town called Cuero. And I believe this happened in 2007 that a one of the officers down there, one of the county officers, took a video of what they saw was a chupacabra mm-hmm. running across the road. And if you, if anyone's interested in like the Texas chupacabra, they might remember this video. It shows like a country road out in South Texas and a little careless canine running down the road and then running to a field. And I saw that on, uh, I believe, Kins 5 was a news station. And I thought, oh, these creatures, they're, they're close. The, the, the stuff happening just uh, almost right outside my backyard. Hmm. And then I remember, I can't remember the exact year, but also there's a hoaxer that helped down here in San Antonio that said he shot a Bigfoot. Hmm. And, of course, that was a giant hoax, and it's happened uh, more recently today. But that also got me into the study of like cryptozoology and research because I realized how much this occurs close by. And I realized, okay, if there's cryptids here in Texas, they have to be everywhere, but they can't just be everywhere because, of course, they have to be in like middle town or something like that. So it was really a lot of events that I saw that happened here in Texas and close by that really got me more into, into the field and actually doing the research myself. That is that's fascinating that that um, that video of that chupacabra was so I mean in pretty close proximity to where you're at. Um, did you find yourself uh, starting to get involved with that case or or trying to contact you know people that were involved with that video or any cool stuff that came out of that eventually? I've done it uh, more in more in recent years because okay. I'll admit it that. Uh, I was most likely kind of, you can say, armchair researching or an enthusiast up until maybe one or two years ago. Mm, okay. Since the publishing of my book and work on that, I, I've actually been doing field research. And not as much field research as most people, but it's a little bit maybe a camping trip here and there, but actually talking to eyewitnesses and talking to fellow researchers. That's only the most uh, recently. 
but for a long time I've been doing like looking into newspaper articles and looking into zoological and paleontological records and trying to find correlations between cryptid sightings, historical cryptid sightings, and what we now know from zoology and paleontology. Did you find a few years ago that there was a catalyst that made you go to the next level, which would be starting to interview witnesses, starting to actually reach out, uh, you know, write your own book? Was there something that set you on that road? Honestly, what it, uh, it was always just something I saw myself doing one day in the future. And especially like with the, my book uh, in particular, I was... I started writing game when I was back in high school. Hmm. And what I thought is like, okay, let me put down all my knowledge I have down in like a journal almost. And then I saw, wait, no, this, I don't want to just regurgitate knowledge. I want to add to it. I want to go maybe a little deeper and maybe origins of these creatures. So I started putting that down. And then recently in the past couple of years, I started going back and actually editing it and actually got it published. But we're talking about witnesses and things like that. It really depends on just who I talk to. Like, there's a lot of researchers here in Texas that I've been able to talk to and become friends with. People like Ken Gerhard, mm. Wild Blackburn, mm -hmm. Josh Turner. And these oh, are nice. the people that really got me into this field. Yeah, you know, you're very... Um... You're very fortunate to live in a state where you've got people like, you know, Ken Gearhart, uh, you know, Lyle Blackburn, Josh Turner, um, you know, even, uh, you know, Aaron Deese, up and coming, you know, researchers. Um, it, Texas just seems like it's such a diverse state for cryptids. I mean, I've talked to a gentleman from the Jefferson, Texas area, and the stories about Bigfoot sightings there he had were out of this world. And I mean, yes. it, you've you got your dogman sightings, you've got Josh's stories, you've got, you know, Aaron's uh, research with the the Texas Dogman Triangle that's going to be coming out soon. But it's like that's that state, man. There's something about that state of Texas. Do you think there's something that makes it such a hotbed for cryptids, or or it just just because it's such a big state? I think it's such a big state, but also. I look at what me. I look at cryptids so like an ecological and zoological uh, perspective. So I see the variety of biomes and ecosystems across the state. And if large predators, for instance, like mountain lions, uh, the Mexican red wolf, uh, black bears, if these species could persist and actually survive out here, why couldn't other large predators like such as like Bigfoot and possibly a dogman phenomena. So I don't think it's maybe like a magnet for unknown phenomena, but if it's bringing in known species, why wouldn't these biomes also be bringing in unknown species? Oh, that's pretty The animal's not yet recognized by science. I like that. Yeah, that's 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 smart, man. That is a, that's a smart idea. Yeah, it's, and I mean, what kind of uh, different, you know, when I think of Texas, I think of, you know, so this is, you know, speaking from a guy who, uh, you know, I live up in Iowa, so I've never really been to Texas before. So I know maybe we got some uh, some prairies down there. Um, but what, what other kind of uh, environments do we have that could be could be uh, have some cryptids in there? Well, what it, uh, one, we have several different like ecosystems, like regions. 
Oh, one big one is East Texas. That's uh, Big Thicket and Bayou's, uh, well, River Bottom, places where there's a lot of Sasquatch sightings. If you look at uh, Falcon, Arkansas, that's only maybe 60 to 50 miles away from the Texas state border. So all along East Texas, you have uh, bayous and deep forests and places where large animals can persist. On the southern border, you have the Rio Grande Valley and a lot of open, arid racelands. And this is the areas where, like, living pterosaur sightings occur, uh, the big bird phenomena back in the 90s. And then in West Texas, you have uh, more deserts and mountains, and this is where uh, creatures like living hyenas are found and some dogman sightings. And even El Paso had its own, well, Sasquatch uh, sightings, but what people were describing with Sasquatches were almost like a muzzle, very similar to what we have as the Gugwe nowadays. In Central Texas, where I'm located, we have the Hill Country. This is more... You can't really say mountainous, because if you compare the hill country to the Rocky Mountains, it's like comparing a, a twig to a tree. So it's more hilly, a little bit more forested, uh, hollers, things like that. And this is where there's a good amount of Sasquatch sightings. Are they persistent here? Or maybe. Or maybe they're just uh, being nomadic and moving through. And then in North Texas, you have a lot of big La, La Prairie land, open country, and this is where... Of course, you have a lot of Thunderbird sightings and also some unknown canine sightings up there. Like uh, people have seen hyena-like creatures out in Abilene, Texas. That's northern Texas. You have dogman sightings, the goatman phenomenon as well up in the Fort Worth, Dallas area. So you have a variety of environments and correlating cryptids that connect to it. Because I show these cryptids are maybe persist in a certain environment, that's a possibility. Or maybe it's just how people are seeing the, the area. So it's more like you could ask, what doesn't what doesn't Texas have for... I mean, that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> I had no idea, you know, the immense amount of biomes, and that could definitely, you know, it, support all these crypt... I mean, everything from, you said, goat man to gugwies. That's that's intense. Um, you know, Gugwe isn't a, th it's a thing where that actually hasn't come up on uh, Bigfoot Society as well. Do you mind taking a few minutes uh, talking about what exactly the, the Gugwe is? Of course. Well, the nomenclature behind Gugwe, the entomology, it means space eater and uh, Native, um, I believe it was a Jigwe culture. But it's Native American culture. And what these creatures are described as, it's almost like, imagine a Sasquatch, but with a face of like a mandrill or a baboon. Not particularly a dogman or canine-like uh, origin, uh, like characteristics, but more like a large old world monkey, like the mandrill or the baboon. Muzzles, uh, usually more pronounced dentition, more pronounced uh, canines which would me demonstrate maybe a origin that's different from possibly what we have a Sasquatch, because Sasquatch show more human-like characteristics. These show more primitive primate characteristics, if they are true. Uh, there is not a lot of evidence for them, but if you look up the Beast of Seven Shoots, mm -hmm. this picture was taken up in Canada, back I believe 1990s. And what this picture demonstrates is a peculiar, what we see as a creature, down the lower right-hand corner holding a little white animal. 
a lot of people suspect this could have been a, a dog or something. And a lot of people say it's a Sasquatch, Sasquatch, but then you look at the face and you see a protrusion, a prognathicism in the face. And of course, that's something that's not seen in Sasquatch phenomena. People describe a flat face very to humans. And these Gugri are described to be a lot more violent, a lot more territorial than what you see as just regular Sasquatches. Like if you uh, describe a Bigfoot up in the North, Pacific Northwest, they're a little bit more kind of like, okay, you go your way, I go my way. Mm. But the Gugwe and Sasquatch here in the, south, in the South, it's a little bit more territorial, a little bit more, oh, if you're in my way, I'm going to push you out of my region. Like look at like the Falk Monster and things like that. They are a lot more territorial, a lot more aggressive in behavior. Wow. that You know, and I've heard... I've seen that. Well, I've seen that photo that you're talking about. It is a very interesting photo. And definitely, that's what you hear. You hear about that cryptid, you know, it's got something like a baboon face, and it's usually pretty nasty. Have there been some, uh, some, some encounters with them in Texas, uh, where they've, uh, they've been not the most nice encounters or? Yes. Uh, these are primarily not ones I've taken, but my friend Josh Turner's taken. He's taken a couple oh, sure. Gugly sightings up and by uh, Austin, Texas, which is actually about maybe an hour's drive north of me. And he's, uh, and there's been sightings of him, not just on people's land, but almost trying to push people off of their land and uh, killing animals. There's been stories of, well, one story I heard out in East Texas, people described a Bigfoot grabbing a hog and throwing it against a a tree and killing it. Oh, wow. And hogs out here get a couple hundred pounds. Hmm. But when they describe the animal, they describe it as more of a <clears throat> baboon-like face, a more kind of protruding face. So to me, that might indicate a more of a guggly-like creature than a Sasquatch. But with me personally, at least with cryptids, nomenclature is very important. What you name these creatures is very important. So hmm. when you have like Sasquatch and then guggly dogman, uh, skunk ape, Ohio grassman. People start kind of calling these creatures to like, oh, they might be subspecies of each other or things like that. And with me, at least in my research, I don't believe so, but it just comes to like what you start naming these creatures. Like people say, like maybe like the Genosqua, another name for Sasquatch might be like a subspecies of what we now know as Sasquatch, which I don't believe so. It might be just a different name for it. Mm. So there's a bunch of different names. But then we have to come down to the physical description. Like with this Gugri creature, it actually looks different from what we see as Sasquatch. And its behavior is also different. Mm -hmm. So to me, that indicates it's a different species than what we now know as the North American ape, the North American Sasquatch. So interesting. I want to make sure that we talk about uh, your, your book, of course. So, you know, you already mentioned that it's important uh you felt it was important not to just regurgitate uh, information that has already, you know, been in other books. What are what are some things in uh, cryptids of the world that, you know, are going to be, um, you know, unique to your your book specifically? Do you feel? Well, one thing that I always try to do with these uh, with cryptids is an explanation of them. Mm. As we all know, a species just doesn't appear out of nowhere. It has, a, it has an origin, it has a natural history, uh, its behavior, its uh, 
the way it looks, the way it acts, all that comes for adaptation evolution. So with these cryptids I write about, I always try to put, okay, is it possibly a evolutionary offshoot? Like if I talk about, for instance, a ring pendant, I might put it could be a, a bipedal orangutan, it could be a proto pygmy, it could be an Australopithecus, Bigfoot, it could be a Gigantopithecus, it could be a uh, Paranthropus, uh, Yeti, it could be a Denisovan, it could be a Gigantopithecus. Hmm. I always try to put an explanation of these cryptids because looking at cryptids to a natural history, which is almost more like an unnatural history if you really look at it, they have to have an origin. So I always try to put an explanation of these creatures. Now, is it truly what they are? Most likely not, because these are just my own hypotheses. And I'm not someone that says, oh, I can't be wrong. I can easily be wrong with these creatures. Mm -hmm. So I try to put down, like, okay, what could they be? And I try to put in some lesser-known cryptids, like some cryptids that really aren't talked about nowadays, like the Buru, giant monitor lizard I've seen in uh, in uh, Nepal, but hasn't been seen since the 1950s. Mm. The uh, Ninkinaka, uh, almost like a dragon-like creature seen out in uh, parts of Uganda. The lesser-known cryptids, maybe like even the uh, Mandibarunga, Bigfoot-like creature that's seen out in India. I try to put in cryptids that people might not know about or at least haven't heard a lot about and haven't heard the research behind them. That's that's interesting, yeah. Um, I love the, you know bringing in the cryptids where it's you know they they're not the ones that usually get the love you know they're not your <clears throat> your normal you know bigfoot or your dog man you know this is the maybe things from different uh countries but that's really cool that you were you know that you were able to put those in uh that book as well um it, does the book have uh any of uh, any reports that you've taken or um not as of uh... This book, it does not. It has a lot of like uh, physical descriptions, uh, historical sightings, uh, of course, where they seen. Because I kind of have this book as more of an introduction into cryptozoology. Mm-hmm. Nice. If you're inter- interested in cryptids, it's a good little read. Because like, okay, I want to learn about uh, the. I want to learn about Bigfoot. Okay, let me see what it's about. I want to learn about Yeti. I can go to this page. I want to learn about. Cadball source. I can go to this page, and it's a good little introduction. I don't go into a lot, into a lot, a lot of detail because I want each page to be dedicated to a certain cryptid, and for it to be about even. I don't want the Yeti to have like ten pages, mm-hmm. even though you could, because to me it seems a little unfair. Because the uh, Yeti and Bigfoot always get all the attention. I want to give each cryptid about an equal amount of attention. Gotcha. And I even have some cryptids that are, I like to call uh, overarching names, like uh, phantom felines. Uh, around the world, you have what we call the panther atrox phenomena. Mm. Uh, unknown black felines, or people see lions in North America, things like that. Uh, unknown canines, that like what Lindegoffrey calls the dire dogs unknown wolf-like creatures seen around the world. And of course, like the dogman phenomena, I call them bipedal canines because I, at least when I wrote this book, I saw it as more of a biological species. But now in recent years, I've kind of changed my mind on that. So I have a 
variety of cryptids in there and also creatures that I use as almost lessons of cryptozoology, like the Wendigo. The Wendigo I do not see as a cryptid, but its characteristics have changed throughout history, and that's a good lesson for cryptozoology because perception uh, shapes the reality of how people see creatures. Hmm. So I put that in there because it shows how perception and psych and the psychosis of reality has changed because of what people say they saw Wendigo is not what they actually see. Like people describe bipedal deer, but the Native American stories describe more of a kind of a rake or gray humanoid like creature originally. Mm. Oh man. Oh, the rake. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there are <laughs> things that make me unable to sleep but we might get to that i mean oh my god but one (laughs) one thing i didn't want to let go by first is you mentioned how your perception of or how you view dogman changed over the years what is your your viewpoint of that now Uh, at first i believe there was a physical creature that has evolved or something like that but if you look at it to a scientific perspective it it can't be not just because it's a mix of canine and human traits that's the latter part of it one thing is i look at the dog man phenomenon through an ecological perspective and with ecology of course you have niches you have apex predators you have uh omnivores things like that mm-hmm. and this bipedal canines they would have to be an apex predator because unlike sasquatch canines are not omnivores they don't really eat a lot of plants and fruits and things like that sure so it would be containing a niche based in the little very similar like wolves and bears but when you indicate sightings they live in the same environment as bears and wolves so you cannot have two major predators living alongside each other one would have to outcompete the other and even these dogman sightings also occur where bigfoot sightings occur mm-hmm. so you couldn't have that it's something called niche differentiation same animals living in the same area but they don't compete with each other and we have not seen that with these. So it caused me to believe this creature is something else. What it is, I'm not sure. It could be, I don't know, interdimensional, paranormal. Oh. It's something what I call a paracryptid or neocryptid. It's uh, a second kind of subset of cryptozoology I'd call paracryptozoology. The creatures that truly cannot have evolved here on Earth, like dog man, goat man, flying humanoid. These are creatures that just due to their biology, if it is truly biological, this couldn't have evolved the way they do, they are described. And that is that is very interesting, Ryan. So you're saying that so the, this grouping, the paracryptids, they you're saying they've they've come from somewhere else. Yes. What that something somewhere else is. I don't know. That's not really where my research goes into. That's what I have other people. I know other people that do that. But with me, I'm like, okay, if something else, what it is, I don't know. I'm not going to touch that. I might touch uh, it a little bit. I was like, he's either not going to touch this or we're... So, I mean, hypothetically, this could be from other planets. This could be from inside the middle of the earth, you know. Um it has to come from yeah. or from another dimension or another, you know, all sorts of things. Yeah. Well, it could be even, well, let's call it monster of the human mind. Oh. How people's fear and perception and psych- psychology affects their reality. 
it's like how someone might be super high, might be highly religious and see like uh, Jesus' face at a, at a potato chip, something like mm-hmm. that. If you have a preconceived notion of re- of a existence of a being or a creature, you expect to see it in, within your reality. It's like if I believe a dog man, if I see something weird in the woods, oh, it was a dog man. That's how just some people's minds work. Uh, our eyes are on video cameras, and our brain might be the most powerful computer in the world, but it might not have the computing power of one. So what we see and what we perceive are two different things. And belief has a very strong role in that. And psychology has a very strong role in that. So with like the dogman and goatman phenomena, I believe it could be something else going on. Maybe it's a misidentification of Sasquatch. Maybe it's a misidentification of another creature. But when it comes to a good amount of sightings, it can't be a misidentification. It has to be something else. What that something else is, it could be like the actual dog man or goat man. Well, that's, so I think that's a lot thing, of it yeah. is psychology. It, I mean, that is that is very smart. I mean, it, you can go so many different places from there. It's like, you know, the thing that gets me, though, is like you have, a, you know, a person where... You know, it's one thing if you've got a person who all they're doing is is reading Bigfoot books. All they're doing is watching, you know, stuff on the Sasquatch archives and old Bigfoot movies. And then they go out and they see Bigfoot. Okay, well, that's what you're filling your mind with, right? But the thing that gets me is these witnesses where it's like, they're not Bigfoot people. They're not Dogman people. And they saw something. Yeah. That's the one. That's what gets me, Ryan. It just blows yeah, my mind. Like- the people that say, "Oh, that's what that creature was." I didn't know what that. I didn't yes. know what that was called. There's witnesses I've talked to, like, "Oh, what you saw was Bigfoot." Like, I just thought, I thought, I, thought I just, they, I, I thought I just saw some hairy human in the woods, something like that. Mm-hmm. The people that don't know what these creatures are, or at least, or at least a name to them, that's what also interests me as well, because you don't have a preconceived belief in it. So how you? What you're seeing is what you truly are seeing. You're not adding anything to that because you have nothing to add. I, I don't want to put you on the spot, so feel free to to decline. But um, you know, over the years, you've you've talked to to different witnesses, you know, maybe gotten different reports. Are there any of those that are unique to you that you're able to share? Perhaps, or is that something where you know there's some of them you know we we don't want to get into? I'm uh, trying to think if there's anything that's maybe more unique to me. Well, one is I do have some reports in San Antonio. One that I've taken, well, one of my first ones I've taken a couple of years ago was an uh, individual that lives here in San Antonio, Texas, and lives by a place called Salado Creek. And at night, they would hear strange howls and whines and things like that. And I ran an experiment. I ran different uh, animal calls on, like, YouTube and said, hey, is this this? Is this this? I ran coyote howls, wolf howls, uh, some primate noises, and, of course, wild dogs. And what they connected to the most was a friend of mine, Tex Weston. He took a, a... strange audio out in East Texas and what he believes is a either a Sasquatch or a dogman. And when they heard that, they immediately perked up their ears and said, that's exactly what I heard. Mm. So 
it's an audio, so it's what you call like trace evidence. You didn't see the creature, but it might correlate to maybe some type of unknown creature living within San Antonio. Well, not within San Antonio, but at least moving in and out. Because mm-hmm. recently I've talked to, uh, I believe, a former guest on your show, uh, Bear County Bigfoot. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. Rod, and I right? believe yeah. maybe, yeah. And I believe maybe that evidence might correlate with his theory of a Sasquatch living in Salado Creek. Mm. So it's funny how different researchers come to the same conclusion or, or at least have very, uh, very correlating evidence. And they never knew each other beforehand. I didn't know about kind of Bigfoot until recently, but I took that report about a year and a half ago. Wow. Oh, that's so cool. And, and you know, maybe your the information that each of you have can help the other one out. And that's that's why I think it's so important in this field that you know we're not about you know tearing the other person down, but we're like, hey, uh, I heard those weird Bigfoot uh, thing, and I hear you're into Bigfoot too, but uh, maybe this will help you out, you know. Be, be open to sharing your stuff. You know, people need to do more of that. Yes. Like, I actually have uh, Bear County Bigfoot coming on my show this actually Saturday. And I'm, so we can actually talk, uh, sit down and discuss and talk because I am very interested in his research. And especially because it's literally in my backyard. <laughs> but he's done the research a lot more than I. So I want to talk to him like, okay, let's see what we can find out through discussion. Because with me, discussion is a lot of this research. It's talking to researchers and talking to eyewitnesses and being able to not just, like you said, tear down someone else because they might have a different opinion, but seeing how you can come together on your opinions to see maybe, okay, you think that way, I think this way. Let's see how we can meet in the middle. And I'm not going to change your mind, of course, but let's just see how we can come to an agreement. So smart. And I mean, that'll be a very cool episode, which your podcast is uh, named the Cryptid Chronicles, correct? Uh, Yes, sir. Yep. And so that'll be very cool because, you know, you talking to Rod, you'll be able to get really specific about a lot of really cool stuff in that area since you're both familiar with it. And I think that's something very special when you have an interview where both people are very uh, familiar with the subject or even the the subject area, um, but yeah, he's a good guy. I enjoy talking to him for sure. Yeah. Do you ever um, do you ever uh, go to a, do any research outside the state of Texas, or pretty much your main focus is inside the state of Texas? With me, it's mostly inside Texas because okay. I well, well, I do share this information out quite a bit, so I'll share it to you. I'm actually a full time educator. Ah. So with it, I don't have a lot of time, uh, at least not during the summers, during the school year, to go and do research. I mm. usually spend my uh, summers doing like try to do research, but just due to, well, time and budgetary constraints, I really can't go out and do a lot of research sure. recently. But I do travel for like conferences and things like that. But I try to I'm trying to do research outside Texas, but it's going to be something that's a little bit more down the line for me. Gotcha. What uh, what conferences are you able to make it to? I've done uh, like the te- uh, Jefferson Bigfoot Research Conference okay. done by Craig Woolheater. Yep. The Southeast Texas Bigfoot Conference, the uh, the first annual Alabama Bigfoot Conference, 
I tried to make it to the Paris, Tennessee Dogman Conference done by Josh Turner. Oh, yeah. But just due to it was the beginning of the school year, I wasn't mm-hmm. able to make it. But there's a couple more conferences I'm trying to make this year than last year. Like uh, Falk, Arkansas, the, uh, I believe it's a Florida conference uh, done by Stacey Brown, yep. a couple other conferences here in the South. It's crazy how many conferences are down in the South when you think about it. I mean, you guys have a lot going on down there. You guys are lucky. Yeah. But um, let's talk, you know, the listeners want to hear it. I, I know they're like, I can't believe you skipped over it because you're you're wussing out. But uh, let's talk about it. So what are your feelings about the rake or, you know, your gray humanoids, however you want to talk about them? Okay. Would that when I look at at least the physical description of these like rake like creatures, I can't really pinpoint if they could have evolved if they oh what what their like origins would be like unless it's maybe some type of race of people that just went in a weird direction. Oh man! But with their behavior and their mold their actions or show something that's well unnatural in origin because if you look at like uh encounters with these rake like creatures they're almost never they're never good they're almost always <laughs> nasty they're almost always trying to attack you and that's just not how animals work that's not how living things work uh, most species are uh they like to kind of just go their way and avoid humans but with these creatures it's almost like they're coming after people and causing fear which most things just don't work like that so with me what they are i believe they're somehow maybe paranormal in origin but other than that i'm not sure there is a phenomenon to it of course there are plenty of eyewitness accounts and things like that that there is a phenomenon to it what that phenomenon is i do not know in we all you know we kind of touched on this in a way do you think it's almost a thing where human humans in general we tend to focus on something and then because everyone's focused on it I don't want to get too weird, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it's yeah, almost a phenomenon. Sure. Well, yeah. Which, yeah. I think you're trying to reference. Yeah. So when me, break that down for the, the common man. Yeah. It's Topa. It's a, it's an idea from the Buddhist religion. It's an idea that if you think about something hard enough, it become reality. It's like, if you think positive thoughts, positivity would be put into the universe like that. Mm-hmm. When me, I do believe in it, but not in a physical sense if that makes sense if you believe in something hard enough you will see it but it doesn't necessarily mean it's there like how i was saying earlier with perception if you like have like what renee holland from uh fighting bigfoot would say bigfoot (laughs) on the brain of course you're gonna see bigfoot (laughs) yeah it's like a non-fiscal topa like what you would i would call it if you have the rake on the brain you might see a rake Sure. If you have Dogman on the brain, you might see a Dogman. Not necessarily. It doesn't mean every person that sees Dogman is misidentifying something. Of course not. Or even the rink. But it is how just how humans work, our perception, how our reality works. So with the Topa phenomena, I do believe in it, but not 
with like a truly physical sense, more of a psychological aspect to it. Very, it's very interesting because it's almost like it seems to go in cycles. Like there was a, for a, a while it was like, oh, Bigfoot. Now it's like a lot of people are like, it seems like the, the dog man is like, got super popular out of, out of nowhere, you know, but, uh, yes. that could be, that could be a few different things as well. But, um, you, I think you mentioned a while back, we were talking about the rake earlier and you were saying that there's some native American reports or stories regarding something similar to the rake. Is, is that what you'd said? Well, yes. Cause if you look at, the objectway cultures and the cultures of the Algonquins, when they're referencing the Wendigo, they are not referencing some like bipedal deer creature describing what you more describe as the rake nowadays. Uh, creatures that are gray or white in skin, uh, maybe crawl on all fours, which is already a horrifying thing to think about. <laughs> but it's what you think of as rake, not what you think of as the Wendigo nowadays. Because if you think of Wendigo, you think of a bipedal deer or something, something that has horns and antlers. But that's, of course, not what they describe. They describe something more akin to what we see as the rake. So that's how, like, naming and nomenclature and how mm. this belief can change. Because I've done some research into the Wendigo with my friend uh, Ryan Paul Trembley. Oh, sure. And he shows how, thanks to when Europeans entered North America, the perception of Wendigo changed. They brought the ideas of the Lupgaru and the werewolf, and that altered their perception of the Wendigo and the cultural idea of the Wendigo. But originally, it was more of a rake-like creature. Hmm. That's that is interesting. Have you found in your research that there's certain parts of the country that are maybe more susceptible to having rake reports, or is it pretty much a could be anywhere type thing? I think it could be anywhere, but yeah. usually most, at least major sightings, at least the ones you hear mostly about, does occur mostly in North, the northeast area of North America, mm. maybe the eastern seaboard parts of maybe the Midwest, some along the West Coast, but it's a little bit, it's a little bit everywhere. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, hopefully not too much in the Midwest. They can, they can keep away from Iowa, but you know. I'd hate to see yeah, one of got, those out of it. What you got up there, Dogman? Yeah, know, that's true. Not that's true. We got, <laughs> we got the Dogman up here. I'd hate to see a rake, you know, golem run out of a cornfield. Can you imagine that? Oof. That would be horrifying. Oh, boy. Yeah, no thanks. Um, you know, uh, well, I, I got to ask you because the title of the – the show is Bigfoot Society. So we, we got to have some, some Bigfoot chat, but I like to always, you know, ask the guests. So what is, what are your two cents on what Bigfoot is specifically? How do you describe that to people? Well, I describe it very similar to like, uh, what Jeff Meldrum calls them, a, a relic hominoid. Mm. I, don't, I don't try I try not to use the word hominid or hominid, because we don't truly know what this creature is. It's, a, of course, a primate of some sort, and it's mm -hmm. human-like in origin, but what it truly is, I'm not sure. I do have my hypotheses of what they are, but truly what they are, either human or non-human, we do not know. Interesting. Do you, do you think they've they've been here all along? Well, actually, I do. Like, the... 
project I'm working on now is a my second book. It's the working title is Sasquatch: A Prehistory of a Living Legend. Oh wow! And what I want to talk about is how I believe Sasquatch, its characteristics, both anatomically and behaviorally, demonstrate what we call an evolutionary anachronism. It was built for a prehistoric world. And if you, an example of that is, okay, this might be a little off topic, but the avocado. The avocado, its fruit was built, was made for pre, prehistory, megafauna. Uh, it's seed. If you ever seen like avocado seed, it's so large, no living creature could carry it. Hmm. But what did eat it was gonfitheres, uh, megatheriums, a uh, giant ground sloths, oh, uh, wow, mammoths. Yeah. That's what moved them around. But once those animals died out, the avocado also almost went extinct. But it only stayed extinct thanks to us humans. I believe the same phenomena to an extent occurred with Sasquatch. It was built for. In my hypothesis, Pleistocene or Pliocene United States, <laughs> alongside other megafauna that was indigenous to this area, play, uh, animals like giant ground sloths, uh, saber-toothed cats, the American lion, which was like two times the size of modern African lion, the short-faced bear, the hyenodons, all these other ferocious, truly monstrous creatures. And now what this animal is, I do have an idea that I believe it's a older genera of apes, most likely from Miocene Europe. Because mm. if you look at Miocene Europe, you had a, a a large variety of different creatures. You had a Denuvius, Dryopithecus, Oreopithecus, Kenyopithecus, and all of these creatures, at least anatomically, might demonstrate that they're on a way to bipedalism. Oreopithecus alone shows a concave pelvis and a concave knee, which demonstrates a bipedal stance. And this occurred about 12, about 12 50 to 15 million years ago. Hmm. This is long before humans were even around. So if a primate was already becoming bipedal before us, what would it look like now? I believe they would become a lot larger, a lot more derived in both uh, anatomically foot structure as well because if you look at the the foot structure of the sasquatch it shows very relic hominoid characteristics the mid-tarsal break the flexion even like the hands of sasquatch it shows a much more primate-like characteristics not human so i believe that most likely sasquatch is a most likely some type of dry epiphysine that is entered north america a lot older than what we thought. A lot of times when people think of like Gigantopithecus or other creatures that presumably Bigfoot, they think Pliocene, Pleistocene, an animal that maybe came around here maybe 10,000 years ago. Personally, I don't believe that. I believe Bigfoot, well, Sasquatch, it's a lot older genera. It's a lot older species. I believe it may enter North America maybe 10 million years ago and has evolved since here in North America on its own is now what we now know as Sasquatch. So, but at least this is what my ideas are. It's very interesting ideas as well. So where do you feel the original, uh, if you could say home or birthplace of, of the Sasquatch would have been if you're following that, that uh, train of thinking? I believe most likely, at least from my senior, most like maybe Italy, Germany, moved 
across Russia and into what wow. we now know as Beringia. And once it entered Beringia, this area was a lot more lush, a lot more deciduous forest. Uh, Pleistocene uh, Alaska looked a lot like modern-day Washington State. So I believe these creatures might have evolved since then. But most likely bipedalism would have evolved. And if they weren't already bipedal, they would become a lot more human-like in bipedalism. Uh, their hands would have formed a more human-like hand. Their brains would have gotten larger, thanks to the sustenance of, of meat. Because humans, we believe, got a larger brain thanks to us being able to eat meat and more protein. And what we see from the ecology of Sasquatch eats a lot more meat than other primates, except for maybe even chimpanzees, but just due to caloric intake of Sasquatch, it eats a lot more uh, protein than other apes, of course. So I believe it would have evolved and come what we now know as Sasquatch, because if we look at the modern Sasquatch, it is almost perfectly built for the North American uh, ecosystem, hmm. not for some jungle or some uh, desert. It's built for deciduous forest and mountain ranges, and that's exactly what we had here in Pleistocene and Pleistocene North America. Even uh, suspects of maybe having a little bit thicker uh fat and skin like a lot of people say they shoot if they've shot bigfoot it has no effect that might demonstrate a thicker skin or thicker fat layers which of course was very common in in ice age mammals like mammoths and mastodons had uh, uh fat that was almost 10 inches thick so that might be a morphological detail that might demonstrate it being a prehistoric creature its size what I like to say about Sasquatch, it is truly an example of Ice Age megafauna. Mm. It is truly wow. gigantic. And that doesn't fit with modern-day North America. It it takes it needs too many resources. It needs too much food. So why would it be the size it is? Except if it lives alongside prehistoric creatures like Smilophotalus, uh, Alcotosimus, the salt-faced bear, uh, Titanus, the tarot birds. I believe it lives alongside those creatures, so it morphologically and behaviorally adapted for those predators. Not for what we now now have nowadays, but maybe it did adapt a little bit to the most dangerous predator of all, Homo sapiens. Mm. That's why it has such cryptic behavior and nocturnal, because there are not there are no known nocturnal apes. Maybe that's why they became nocturnal. Oh. I just personally believe that Sasquatch have evolved and adapted thanks to prehistoric North America and humans. You know, you can really let your mind wander when you start going down that road and you like you wonder if there is a point in history where, you know, Sasquatch, uh, you know, got into, you know, wars or of, against humans or, you know, if there were any clashes like that or it's just... It's crazy to think about, but yeah, like uh, one thing I think about is I don't know if maybe you've seen these in uh, your time, but like those like paintings they have like prehistoric North America, some of that's like oh, mammoth, camel, horse, things like that. I will, I'm always looking at those. I look at that, I'm like, if you put Sasquatch there, it would fit perfectly. Mm. I can mm -hmm. just imagine a troop of Bigfoot in the corner, like maybe eating fruit or something. So I thought, why couldn't that be reality? Why couldn't that actually exist? And that's what really got me into this. 
And then I looked at the morphology, behavior of Sasquatch. I'm like, okay, that it fits perfectly with being a prehistoric creature. And would that idea of <clears throat> them becoming like violent with humans? Of course, you have the stories of red-haired giants in North America and of giant creatures that lived alongside humans. So I believe, at least, if a troop of Sasquatch were in an area the same as humans, it, it could come out to conflict if they were going after the same food resources and things like that. That's maybe why they become so such cryptic, such cryptic animals. Like one thing I like to bring up is Native American groups. They saw Sasquatch as being another like human, like a tribe. And they said they're a lot more kind of hand-in-hand with humans. They came a lot closer. They lived a lot co- closer to the Native Americans. But once settlers came in, it pushed away the uh, Sasquatch and pushed them into more deeper areas, higher mountains, deeper forests. And that's because once the settlers came in, they destroyed the environment. They cut down forests. They burned fields. Native Americans did not do that. So I believe the Sasquatch would see the destruction in the environment and be pushed away hmm. and moved out of it. Maybe that's why there aren't as many Sasquatch sightings now as what Native Americans would talk about them being almost a mega tribe that lives alongside them. It's due to the destruct- destruction of the environment, maybe even killing a Sasquatch. Because uh, there are plenty of stories of people killing Sasquatch back in the 1800s, but what they would describe as just killing of a wild man or even later in the 1800s, That's true, gorillas. Yeah. yeah. Right. Even look at the Jacko uh, incident up in the, I believe it was a Ruby Creek. People described seeing a small gorilla-like creature and captured it on a uh, box car on a train. But after that, no one knows what happened to it. So maybe that's why we have Sasquatch in such mountainous and forested areas is because we've pushed we've pushed them into those areas it's crazy crazy to think about but i mean it 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 totally makes sense what were the stories of the red-haired giants that you were referring to earlier well with that some native american tribes especially along the mississippi river delta Hmm. describe giant human well at least they would describe giant humans more akin to maybe the uh, uh, giants of like European legend, mm-hmm. like uh, no uh, Norwegian legend, but they describe giant hair covered creatures with red hair, or black hair that would come and kidnap uh, women, eat children, things like that. You have like stories of the Sukalu from the Cherokee legend. They would describe giant uh, giants that would come and steal their women. But of course, that phenomena itself is so interesting because if you look at the indigenous people of Africa, they describe the same thing occurring, but with gorillas. They describe really? gorillas stealing women and stealing children. And of course, we don't see wow. that nowadays. So I believe a lot of these like, kidnapping stories might be a little bit more of exaggeration. <sighs> I believe it still occurred because even chimp, uh, modern chimpanzees steal babies from their cribs to eat them. They just see them as another food source. Yeah. So I believe if the Sasquatch are very similar to like modern day apes, they could see human, especially younger humans as a food source, but a regular food source, probably not. Like they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not out here eating babies and 
things like that. This isn't like Red Dead Redemption. But I do believe <laughs> that they're out here. Right. Maybe if they see an opportunity, they take it. I, I believe right. Bigfoot are highly opportunistic omnivores. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to be right. Yeah. Bigfoot. Um, that just blew my mind. Dude, I've never, you know... I'm sure maybe some other listeners have, but you know, personally that the connection you made there between, you know, um, the gorillas doing the same things that, you know, the, uh, the red haired giants like that, that's blowing my mind, dude. That's very cool. Thank you for sharing that. Um, let's talk about, uh, you know, let's talk about actually, uh, you're saying there's sightings of living pterosaurs down in Texas? Uh, yes, there's uh, plenty of examples. Like uh, my friend uh, Jason Clean, he's a researcher based up in Fort Worth and Fort Worth, Dallas area. And he see, he believes he saw a, what do you call a raphorinkoid pterosaur. If you think of more like, I don't know if you've seen Jurassic Park or Jurassic World. Yes. But like the, I, yeah. the ones with a long tail and a big head. Right. Yep. Those are that met those are dimorphodons. Okay. Well, Raphorinkoids are very similar. They have a long tail with a flange, a little bit smaller than like a pteranodon or a pterosaur. But people describe seeing those creatures. And you have several examples of this. You have the Kongamotu of Africa, that means the breaking of boats. People describe uh the indigenous were described growing across a, a river or a lake. And then these giant bat-like birds, they would call them, or like night demons, they would sometimes call them, would come down and attack them in their boats. The rope in a Papua New Guinea, or the double, the, the demon flyer, the, they describe a, a creature with a long tail, a pterosaur-like body and a crest, and bioluminescence. Mm. You have the big bird of south texas you just people reported seeing a pterosaur like creature flying around even actually here in san antonio back in the 19 i believe 80s a group of school of school teachers were driving on the south side of san antonio and they looked in the field and they saw this weird looking bird flying across the field once they got to the school they looked in the textbooks they couldn't find it until they opened up a dinosaur book and they saw a picture of a, of a pterodactyl. Mm. And they said, this is what they saw. With me personally, I do put some um, belief into the idea of living pterosaurs. But with me, not a lot. Because okay. with it, it's been 66 million years. I don't believe these creatures would at least look the same for 66 million years. If you look at non-avian dinosaurs like the theropods and raptors they went from giant scaly old actually feathered covered creatures that cute that were giant to what we now know as birds like uh, crows and sparrows so i believe if that has changed so much in 66 million years why would these creatures stay the same and even then when people describe seeing these creatures they describe Pointed wings, uh, scaly skin, bat-like wings, giant crests, giant tails. And from the paleontological record, we now know these creatures didn't look like that. Hmm. They were covered in what we call pycnal fibers. So they almost looked like they were covered in hair. Their wings were rounded at the tip. 
their wings actually look a lot different from what we now know in like uh, media. They did not have long tails, at least most of them did not. And their crests were a lot smaller than what we see in like sci-fi and like things like that. So with me at least, I believe a lot of these pterosaur sightings are people thinking they saw a pterosaur because it looks similar to what they saw on TV. But now what we now know from the paleontological record, pterosaurs didn't really look like what you see on Jurassic Park and other like dinosaur movies. So people are letting their, again, their preconceived notions and beliefs shape what they saw. It's the same thing also occurs in the living dinosaur phenomena. If let's say, you know, if we've got pterosaurs down in Texas, where do you think they are uh, hanging out at? I believe if there were, they'll probably be in South Texas or along the border. Cause in that area, you have a lot more like deep gorges and canyons and of course that has a lot more airflow and a lot more mm. warm air to boost them up. Some of the largest pterosaurs actually on record have been found here in Texas, uh Cretocortlus, giant as dark a pterosaur that had a wingspan of forty to fifty feet. That was indigenous to South Texas during the during the Cretaceous era sixty six million years ago. Mm-hmm. So Maybe these creatures are still around, but just with me, I believe a creature that was six, 50 to 60 feet or wingspan will probably see a lot more than what we see nowadays. But I do believe maybe some of these sightings are what we now know as a Thunderbird uh, phenomenon. A large, giant bird, not a large, giant uh, pterosaur. It's wild. It, it You know, it's wild to think of... <sighs> that the possibility because the weird thing about there's if you look at let's say look at the world there are these stories from different parts of the world's the world of um you know you've got i believe there's a a cryptid in australia where they saw like a t-rex you know type type creature i think there was a t-rex seen up in the yukon of some sort you know you've got in the congo you've got your you know, you always have. They're talking about Michaelian Bembe, yeah. And, and what do you do? You think there's something to this? Maybe still living dinosaurs around, or just it's very weird to think about. I, do you have any thoughts yeah. about that? Would it like what you referenced earlier is the Bollinger? Yeah, yeah. And also, I think it was like a Ceratosaurus that was supposedly seen uh, in the Yukon. Mm. With me, I've done quite a bit of research into non-avian dinosaurs and paleontology. Mm. With me, personally, I don't put a lot of merit into the living dinosaur phenomena because if you look at it, a lot of these descriptions are what we thought dinosaurs looked like. Like, for instance, the ceratosaurus that was seen in the Arctic, they described a, a creature that stood upright but its tail dragging along the ground. Mm-hmm. That was what we thought dinosaurs looked like back in the 1900s. Mm. And it wasn't until recently, past, until the 1960s, that I realized theropods, their bodies were parallel to the ground. Very similar like what you see big, like you see like T-Rex in like Jurassic Park. Their tails are not dragging along the ground. But people describe that. So how are people describing something that never existed in reality? That never existed in a uh, fossil record. Uh, if you look at a lot of the 
actually, if you look at a lot of the prehistoric like creatures that supposedly live in Africa, Mokema Bembe, Emilinatoka, Kangamoto, Ninkinaka, the Naguna Monin, I believe a lot of these cryptids honestly were probably created thanks to people's belief set because this is not knocking any of the researchers that do this research, of course not. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people that do the research in living dinosaurs are younger of creationists. Sure. So they believe the Earth is 6,000 years old. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have that standard that they're going to, of course, find evidence that support their, their belief sets. Mm-hmm. And maybe not listen to the scientific uh, data and all that. And a lot of these cryptids are describing like what we saw as dinosaurs back in the 1800s. Like the Mokema Bimbe, for instance, they describe a sauropod that lives in the rivers and things like that and eats off of like trees um, uh, above the jungle and things like that. And that they, even some stories said they ate meat and that they were highly territorial. But if you look at what we now know as sauropods, they more likely persisted in desert environments and mm-hmm. the idea of them living in water very similar to like what you saw in the land before time right. doesn't exist <laughs> like that's oh, not no. how they were oh you're killing me <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very so much sad. true <laughs> yeah because yeah. there's even a youtube channel i think called like what you think about dinosaurs is wrong because oh, it's funny what we what we see in media is very not it's very unlike what we actually see in reality and we see mm. with actual paleontological yeah. record yeah. wow Oh man, yeah, a lot from that as well. Bringing it back to Texas for a bit, um, you've got a the name of the company escapes me, but do you have any thoughts on? Uh, there's this weird trend where companies are like, let's bring back the mammoth, let's bring back the thylacine. What's the deal with with that, Ryan? Have you heard about this yet? Yes, I know about the Dowsing cloning project. Yeah. I know of course we've heard about Mammoth one past couple sure. past couple of decades. Sure, yeah, yeah. With me personally at least at least my opinion, I could understand it from like trying to understand the creature to the first first place. But what you're doing is you're not creating like a natural mammoth. You're mm, creating mm-hmm. an elephant with mammoth like Characteristics. That's true, yeah. Well, the thylacine, I'm not even sure what you would base thylacine on because it has know. to be based on the extant species. So, like, I don't know if they're trying to make a Tasmanian devil larger because that's one of the closest extant uh, species that are similar to thylacines or something like that. But what you're getting is not truly what you had in prehistory. Or even thylacines only got out maybe a couple, if they even died out. A couple hundred years, uh, less than yeah. hundred years ago. That's true. If they so, even died out, yeah, yeah. So what you're getting is like, it's not really a genuine creature. It's what you create in a lab. It's very much. I, I, I don't know why we keep bringing up Jurassic Park, but what you're getting <laughs> are theme park monsters, not real species. Right. So that's just what my belief is, because I know even with the mammoth project it goes hand in hand with what you call pleistocene park it's a park based up in uh, siberia and what they want to do is bring back the mammoth step ryan what are, the... what are you talking about it, it's pl- this is a real thing 
Yes. Really? Yeah. What What they're doing oh is they're trying to re- recreate a prehistoric environment. They're already doing so because they've brought back some. Well, not brought back, but they're bringing in species that haven't been indigenous there for thousands of years, like musk musk oxen, uh, certain species of horses, uh, the Saba an- antelope. All oh, these creatures wow. lived aside, alongside mammoths, but they were pushed out of that environment. So what they're trying to do is bring back that environment. So what they're trying to do now is bring back these prehistoric species, uh, the Elasmotherium, the uh, giant, like the Siberian really? unicorn, the mammoth, even uh, the cave bear and cave lion. Oh, my goodness, dude. The, that environment's very similar to what we have nowadays, but it's just that you have a couple missing species. But these missing species are the largest species, the largest mammals to ever exist, so it's kind of hard to bring those back. But it's what they're trying to do as well is actually help the environment because this might go a little, more, a little bit complex, uh-huh. but up in Siberia, you have the permafrost, and the permafrost now is melting thanks to the environmental change. Right. But what they're trying to do is when you bring back mammoths, for instance, what they do is they go and they take out they take out trees okay. and create more prairie and step like uh, uh, yeah. environments. <clears throat> and doing so that would actually not release more CO two in the air and, and absorb more CO two. Mm. So the effect would be bring uh, it would decrease uh, climate change. And hence, so the permafrost wouldn't be as melting as fast sure. as it is. So, in a small way, mammoths would be help, would be going against climate change. Yeah. But I'm not 100 percent sure on the science behind that, but I I know it's there, but I'm not 100 percent sure. But you're saying they're wanting to bring back the predators too? Uh, possibly, because with any environment, you would, such you would a have bad predator idea. and prey. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But it's like, dude, you really want to bring back a cave bear? Like, <laughs> oh well, my goodness. Oh, well. They are very similar to grizzly yeah. bears. Of course, they're highly different, but yeah. at least uh, Ursus, what was it? Ursus peculiatus. The cave bear. It's very similar to the modern day uh, Arctosimus. Okay. Um, but uh, Ursus martimus, the polar bear, but it's a little bit different. They're a little bit. They're a little larger than modern day grizzly bears. Maybe about the same size as polar bears. But the only thing I would worry about is if they try to bring back like short-faced bear. That creature was a bear that's about a ton in weight and a ton in on weight. Two feet, was thirteen feet tall. Oh my goodness, dude! Like. Let's not bring that back because that truly is a monster. Just because <laughs> like, we can doesn't like to, you know, kind of like Jurassic Park. Just because you can doesn't mean you should, you know, like, yeah, don't bring back the bear that's a ton in weight. Holy mackerel. Yeah. And actually, it's funny, too, because I'm a big fossil fan and I actually have a skull of a uh, short face bear looking at me right now, actually. I have oh, a cool. Replica. And the skull itself is about two times the size of a human head. So I'm like, that's something I would not want to bring back. But interesting fact, there are some people that believe this creature is somehow existing modern day in Alaska. Because a lot of people see giant bears in Alaska, but they describe bears with shorter, like shorter uh, heads than than like polar bears and grizzly bears and longer legs. 
And that's exactly what the short-faced bear looked like. So maybe in the areas up in Yukon, Alaska, mm-hmm. and, and northern uh, Canada, these creatures could still be, be living. But it'd be just a very small uh, population. It, it seems like you hear the really weird stuff from like the Yukon or way up there. Just it, there's yeah. got, there's gotta be some weird stuff up there, Ryan. And I mean, it's, like, it's not really explored. Of, yeah. If, if you ever heard of like the headless Valley, the, the, the Nahani Valley, that alone is a very peculiar place by itself. Yeah. Share that, uh, share that with our, our listeners. If they uh, haven't heard that, it's a, it's a very interesting story. Of course. The Nahani Valley, it's a place up in, I believe, the Yukon or at least northern Canada. I forget the exact coordinates. But it's a place that for a long time, people believe there's a, several unknown species living there. You have the Nakani, which is a name for a, hum, a human or Bigfoot-like creature that lives up there. People describe the Wahila. The Wahila is described as a giant bear-wolf hybrid mix. Ooh. That was white in color, which is very similar to what we have as the Amphicyon, the bear dogs. But those were extinct supposedly 10, 10 million years ago. There was even some reports up there of people seeing modern-day mammoths. And in the Nahani Valley, there's some places that were so unexplored. Uh, some like prospectors described areas that were like tropical almost, almost like a modern-day like lost world or something like that. But of course, those stories would be perpetuated a lot back in the 1800s and 1900s and bring up like prospectors and tourists. And of course, the Nahani Valley is named the Headless Valley because I believe it's five different prospectors went up there and at different times. But when they were found, they were found without their heads and of course killed. What they were killed by, no one knows. It could have been some unknown predator. It could have been some unknown uh, feral human tribe. Because there's some stories of the not uh, not the, not the, not the Nakani, but it's some a very similar tribe of people, hmm. but not Bigfoot and not anything else to describe people up there, like some like unknown relic cavemen or something like that that live up there in the Nahani Valley and these are might what might be killing people. But what oh. ultimately it is, it's just a very weird area. You have sightings of like Bigfoot like creatures. You even have some stories of the little foots or the Nahakana, the Nahakana, I believe they call them. They're like gnome like creatures. They describe like Bigfoot like creatures but only maybe four to five feet tall and that so, they hunt people like Ewoks that are really mean almost you can think of it like that but <laughs> you if you've ever heard of the proto pygmy phenomenon okay yeah people just yeah people describe that occurring up there as well oh so goodness. this Nahani Valley it's it has a lot of stories in it but if they're all true we're not sure I, I'm pretty sure not all of them can be true because that's kind of I, I don't know how a place like that could even exist. Like, I would hope they're not all true. But it's just a very peculiar area, mostly thanks to the weird deaths up there and how sure. remote it is. You can only get up there by plane. There are no <laughs> okay. roads that lead up there. I was going to ask, I was, I was going to say, this place must be entirely remote and hard to get to if, you know, 
you'd think with all those crazy stories, some some expedition would go up there and, you know, some travel channel discovery would try to blow the lid off of it, but doesn't yeah, sound like know, it's happening. <laughs> yeah, I know it's actually a, see, it's actually a national park now, national preservation oh, really? area. And if you look up, I'm trying to think of the title of the book. I think it's Legends of Nahani Valley. I believe it was by Hammerson Peters. Oh, yeah. yeah. In this book, he puts in a lot of those stories. And not just the, the Nahani Valley, but also Northern Canada. So if anyone was interested in like reading up more about that, I would say check out uh, Legends of Nahani Valley. And also, I know Hammerson Peters also has a YouTube channel. Mm, he so, does, yeah. He has a lot more information than I could ever really put in there. So I'd say probably go check that out. Fast. It's that's it's fascinating. Um, bringing it back to Texas, uh, you know, there was this there was a big, big thing that happened over the. Well, I'm, I'm trying to remember how long ago it was, but uh, down in Amarillo, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, yes. What did what do you have any thoughts on uh, on this whole Amarillo th- uh, yeah, Amarillo dog yeah, man right? zoo picture? Yeah, the zoo picture. Yeah. yeah. What I personally believe is that I don't think it shows a biological creature. What it is mm. is most likely either something that was blowing in the wind, mm-hmm. or maybe a person in a suit because. I looked up the type of camera and all that they, they show, and that picture that they had in the distance away from the camera, there shouldn't be just one photo. There should be several photos. And actually, the zoo does say that that's actually a video camera. So it took a video, and that's just one screenshot from the video. <laughs> so with me, I'm like, that's kind of suspicious that you don't put the video out there and you don't show other correlating like cameras that were also pointing at that same location. Hmm. So overall, it makes me think, okay, it could have been just a publicity stunt, which it's not knocking the zoo or anything like that, but sure. it's most likely that's what it is. Because if you look at, even if you look at the picture itself, if that was a creature, it doesn't make sense of how it's walking. It's a uh, center of gravity. It's behind it. No animal walks like that. Yeah, and if point. you look at yep. the legs, yep. Either the legs are obscured by grass, or it looks like it doesn't have a bottom of the leg. Mm. So it's just really weird in general, and I personally believe it's either some type of hoax, or maybe people were scrubbing through and they saw a picture and they saw, okay, that looks like something. It's We know it's a piece of trash, but we, it looks like something, so they put that out there yeah. in order to get publicity. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm, you know, when I think of the whole... Th- it probably at the end of the day, it was a very smart uh, marketing ploy. Uh, but, you know, uh, need more evidence to say 100% on my case. But, th- you know, the other th- news that came out of Texas uh, not too long ago is um, were you able to see, wasn't there like a dinosaur trackway found in a, in a riverbed? Actually, yeah. Now that's fairly, well, not, not happened, I think, a couple of years back. Uh, if we're talking about the same one, I think it was uh, like in the last few months, maybe. I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. That actually happened, actually, very close to my home. That oh, happened wow. at the Gov- Government Canyon State Park. 
And a couple of years back, they also found the dinosaur trackway. Oh, okay. But in recent years, thanks to drought and things like that, they'll find they're able to find a like a dinosaur trackway very close to there. Government Canyon's only maybe thirty minute to an hour drive away from my home. And actually here in San Antonio we have the Whitty Museum. And the Whitty Museum actually has a replica of that trackway in its museum. And it shows supposedly I think it's an archocanthosaurus and some type of hadrosaur that was indigenous to here during the Cretaceous era. Because during the late Cretaceous, Texas was actually covered by water. We had the hmm. western and inland sea that covered from all the way up the Mississippi River Delta, all the way up into Canada. This is one giant seaway. We had creatures like Elaspasaurus, a Dinosuchus, a giant crocodile, Losasaurus, that swam above my head and actually above your head as well uh, out yeah. in Iowa. So we believe maybe these... Uh, trackways from an ancient maybe uh beach or maybe an area between like the ocean and the uh, uh, land area now, at least that's what we believe this animal is walking along the beach and now has its fossilized tracks fascinating in our last few uh minutes together um is there anything cool that you are currently researching right now cryptid wise in texas that you can share or uh, as of now, not much. Like I am going to try to talk to Bear County Bigfoot to go into mm -hmm. more detail with his research. Nice. I know right now the only thing I'm really working on is my second book, As of Now, and trying to go to conferences and things like that. Totally. So I have a pretty big busy schedule, but I try my best to try to get all that taken care of, uh, and the podcast, of course. Definitely. Is there a, uh, do you have a time in mind uh, for when the second book might be coming out or is it uh, when it's, when it's good enough, it'll be out? Uh, when it, I try to have a goal of trying to reach it by the end of this year, but with how busy my schedule is and working, mm. I'm trying to push it back to maybe next year at some point. Sure. I want to try to get out by maybe April of next year. So as of now, I'm doing introduction research and all that stuff. And it's going to be Sasquatch, a prehistory of a living legend. And it's going to be primarily about, like, the, well, speculative evolution of Sasquatch and where it came from. Very and interesting. that's one we'll be working on right now. Very interesting. As we as we close out, uh, Ryan, it's been a pleasure having you on. Uh, could you share with the listeners how they can keep up to date best with uh, everything you've got going on? Of course. Uh, I do have a Facebook page. If you look up uh, Ryan Edwards on Facebook, uh, hopefully I'll be one of the first people to pop up. Uh, in case you don't see, in case you don't know, my profile picture is me with a smile on skull, so that's fairly distinctive. I also have a YouTube channel. Uh, check out the Cryptic Chronicles on YouTube. That's my podcast. Comes out every Saturday night at some seven o'clock eight uh, p.m. It's a live show. So I try to have as many people go there live as they can so they can talk to me and have a discussion with my guests and whoever I have and me. I also have an Instagram. It's uh, redwards underscore crypto 25. Uh, uh, Facebook, Instagram, I do have a website. If you look up the cryptochronicles.net, that's where I post my, my podcast, link to my book, a couple other reviews and some of my interviews. 
uh, if you want to go there. If anyone is interested in checking out my book, Cryptid of the World, uh, a conclusive guidebook to the menagerie of unknown creatures in around our world, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Half Price Books, anywhere where books are sold, you can find it. But I do have a link to it on my on my face on my Facebook and my YouTube. So if you want to go check out my book and my podcast, just check out the Cryptic Chronicles on YouTube, and my channel will pop up. Fantastic, Ryan! I can't wait to see uh, what comes out from you in the future. Uh, you're a, a very knowledgeable young man, and uh, you got. You got a lot of cool stuff uh, coming up ahead of you, I could just tell. But thanks again for hanging out with us, Ryan. Of course. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Bigfoot Society. Any content provided by our guests are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or Thank you.